guy who did murder a guy One warm May night for the 4th of July And drove up to Auburn with a knife at his side To slash that poor man for he could marry his bride And I once knew a girl who was enamored with the world Twinkle in her eye and her hair done up in curls She rode down to Austin and never did return Brought a one-way ticket on the wings of a bird So today is going to be a little different. And I have to start this off by saying if you were offended or bothered uh, by descriptions of graphic violence um, in a story pertaining to murder, then this is not the episode for you. Uh, this, this story I'm about to tell <clears throat> is a true story. Some of it was told to me. Uh, some of it happened to me, and I filled in the rest of it uh, with public record. It was a court case, and it happened, and a, a man is in jail now um, because of it. Uh, so, although it is on the internet and it is public record, uh, I've changed the names of everybody just because I don't feel it's necessary to to further put that out there. If you really wanted to uh, discover who I'm talking about, you could figure it out, but I don't think it's my place to put all those names out there. Um, yeah, so... Basically, we start... We start with when I came back from college. I went to college in Phoenix, Arizona at the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences, and that was in 2005. And when I came back to Portland, uh, part of my, part of my um, schooling was to complete an internship. And so I uh, moved in with a friend and began this internship at KPTV, KPDX, out in Beaverton. And I did that for three months. It didn't really do much for me, but because I completed it, I finished the schooling. And after that, I was kind of lost. I had this, um, this skill set for recording bands uh, and doing various audio uh, live sound. You know, I, I, I had a, a, a skill set that wasn't in demand in this area. And so I kind of felt like I had maybe wasted my time and learned something that was no longer necessary. And so I was working uh, at some crappy places, just barely scraping by. And I was in a band and making music with my friend. And then one day, uh, a friend of mine, he told me, hey, man, uh, there's this position at the Oregon Convention Center. You should go check it out. And so I did. I applied. And went down there for an interview. And although 
I was very limited in my skill set and I was only 21 because of the rate that they were offering at that time. It was pretty easy to get a job there because it was, so this was 2006, May of 2006. And at that time they were paying, I believe it was $10 and 34 cents an hour, which was above minimum wage. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't awful, but it was not great. I mean, they couldn't really pull in super talented people. So they had to, they had to hire people like me. And so I went in and began working there. And for the people listening, basically the, the, the role in that position at the Oregon Convention Center is essentially you show up for work and you're given some sort of document that says this is this is the meeting space these are the items that you need to set up for the event and so we would go to our storage area and load up a cart with uh, speakers and microphones and projectors and screens and all all that stuff that's necessary for a live event and then we'd go out in the floor space and the convention center is huge uh, I believe it's a million square feet. And so we'd go out there and start to set up these items based on what the, the documents showed us. And once the, the room was set, you know, then in most cases, the next day would be the event. And those who had the skills to run that event would be in charge of that. So if you were an audio person, you would be in charge of, of running the audio and either, you know, mixing a band or just doing uh, a lavalier mic on a presenter on stage. So there are various positions. Some people were better at those positions than others. And everybody kind of had a role. And so at that point in time, because I didn't know anything about lighting or projection, I usually got put on audio. And the coolest part about this job at the convention center is I was so young and fresh, and I really hadn't experienced much. I mean, I had, but in terms of the business world, uh, interacting with clients and other, other people in the event world, I had never really done that before. And so I'm thrown into this mix with, in most situations, it was around 15 other people. And we, because it's event-based, you are never really guaranteed any hours. Some weeks in the middle of the winter, you might get one shift. You might get laid off for a month. And I did get laid off a lot, and uh, which at that point in my life was, was cool because it means I got to spend time with the people I wanted to spend time with, and I didn't really need money that bad. Um, but when it was busy, it was busy, and you could work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And so you're thrown into this situation with these people, these 15 strangers, and the this world uh, breeds or attracts very unique individuals. Most people have some sort of background in music um, or film. You know, they're kind of like misfits. And so when I when I started there. I, I can't recall exactly every single person that worked there, but I wanted to give a little rundown of the types of people that you you would come across. Um, so one of the guys 
uh, was a super intelligent musician. He played keyboards in a band, uh, a few different bands, I think. And he is one of the smartest people I've ever met and did not belong there in any way. He also grew uh, uh, baby tomatoes. There's this, there's this floor that wraps around the uh, southern portion of the convention center, and it's exposed to the sunlight since it faces south. And so he had this idea to put planters up there and grow tomatoes just kind of as a way to keep his mind going on the slow days and also to kind of like say screw you to the system because there's a lot of like us versus them in that building. At least there was at that point in time. Uh, There was an aspiring country singer, uh, a very, very talented girl who I've lost touch with. I think she's still singing songs, trying to, trying to do that. There was a small sound company owner who I still know and love. He's a great guy. There was an eccentric video FX musician. Uh, and to elaborate on that, he, he was a crazy dude and he would build, he would manipulate uh, hardware, you know, video hardware so that you could do crazy video glitch type stuff that you'd see at like a rave. He built these boxes and um, he also, he didn't really give a shit about anything that was going on there. Like most of the people that worked there. Uh, it was really just a place to make money while you pursued your real career, which for almost everybody was some sort of art, music, video, whatever. So he didn't give a shit. Most people didn't, uh, but he was constantly looking for ways to take advantage of the space. And so he found this hidden uh, cubby buried back behind some stairwell or something. And he built this crazy photography studio inside there. He like brought a bunch of mirrors in and hung them up. And then he would go in there on the weekends or late at night and just work on projects and do crazy shit. Uh, he, He's a really cool dude, and I hope I can get him on here at some point because I haven't talked to him in probably 10 years, 15 years. I don't even know. Uh, there was a... <laughs> my notes. There was a disgruntled video game genius. This guy is also one of the smartest dudes I've ever met. I still see him occasionally. He He's the type of dude that... Uh, he actually went to a Street Fighter competition in LA or something and played against like actual street fighter champions and he got his ass kicked, but he, I mean, he practiced like 18 hours a day for months trying to get good at this game. Um, and he's, he's also, uh, very, very intelligent when it comes to, uh, computer manipulation and creating graphics. And he's a super smart dude. Uh, there was also a, a fun rocker girl who played shows out of the back of a U-Haul. I didn't work very long with her, but she told me a story once about how her band would just rent a U-Haul and drive around and play music out of the back of it. And I just, when I was 21 and she told me that, I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? It sounded so crazy, but cool. Uh, there was a lead guitarist in a band that also worked on the catering staff. So there was a lot of because we weren't getting paid very much money and we were never guaranteed hours, everybody was always trying to find another way to make money. And 
uh, so most people had multiple uh, part-time jobs, which created issues for the uh, management staff when they would try to book us for shows. You know, we'd be like, oh, I got to work at this place, and they'd get pissed about that. But, um, I mean, I don't know what you can expect when you don't offer somebody full-time employment. They're going to have to find it somewhere else. So, yeah, this dude was in a band, and he also worked on the catering staff. So some days I'd show up, and he'd be working in the uh, the AV department, and then other days I'd see him serving chicken to some rich person at a table. I'd be like, what up, dude? So that was kind of crazy. Uh, there was a quirky documentary filmmaker, and I've known her and hung out with her for a long time. She's a great person. Uh, she no longer lives in this area, but... Uh, is a very creative individual as well. Uh, there was a strange conspiracy theorist who believed the moon landing was a hoax. This guy, I don't know what happened to him. He was a bit older. He was in his 40s, and uh, most of us were like 20s, 30s. And he was, he was a super nice dude, but he believed some crazy shit. He gave me some DVDs about the moon landing being a hoax. He had a ton of stuff about 9-11, which was pretty fascinating. And then some other weird stuff, uh, but this this is just trying to give you a background of the nature of conversations we would have within this group. I mean, it was all over the place. Uh, there was a festival producer slash band leader with a penchant for puns. Uh, I still hang out with him all the time. He's a great guy. There was a lovable anime slash Japan enthusiast. He... He has been there almost his entire life, and the way that they have uh, the retirement set up down there, he is about to retire, and he's only going to be like 47 or 48. Uh, so that's he put in 30 years, but he'll get out, he'll get out, uh, and hopefully go live, live some happy days. Uh, there was a a funny, fearless leader from 90s rock band touring crew. And hopefully I'll get this guy on at some point too, because he's he's a he's a cool guy. Uh, and so that gives you an idea of the type of people that that we're working with and we're hanging out with. And in addition to to those people, there was a freckled sweetheart with a compassionate soul who was always very happy and cheerful and no one ever had anything negative to say about her. She was a real, real sweetheart. And uh, I imagine every single dude that's ever met her in her entire life has had a crush on her because she just was such a, such a great soul. And in addition to that, there was a motorcycle riding ex-National Guard slash Army guy. And so our story is going to circulate around them. So I was hired with no skills, but relatively no skills, in May 2005, $10.34 an hour. Over the course of the next few years, we continued making that amount, and there was a lot of discussion in bringing in a union to unionize our department and get us better wages. And 
The Oregon Convention Center is run or operated by Metro, which is a regional government. And I don't fully understand how it all works, but essentially it's a deep, dark hole where nothing ever gets fixed. And there's so much bureaucratic bullshit to get through. To purchase a pad of post-its would take three quotes from three different places, uh, chain of emails, $1,000, and a fucking act of God. Like, it's impossible to get anything done in this building. And so a lot of us were very frustrated with that. And, you know, after you're, after you're making $10 an hour for a couple years with relatively no raise, you begin to, to question your value. And so from what I understand, someone caught wind that we were meeting with union representatives and shit their pants. And so they said, hey, these, this group of 15 employees is going to unionize unless we do something. And so in July 2007, we were told in a meeting that we would be getting a $7 raise, which is very significant when you are a 20, what was I, 23, 23 year old kid who's never made more than $10 an hour. And you've got a baby boy on the way with your, with your young 22 year old girlfriend. So when that happened, that, that changed a lot of things. We went from 1050 an hour to 1825. And it kind of shut everybody up in terms of, uh, questioning whether or not we wanted to unionize that whole, that whole thought disappeared overnight. And so what did I say? That was July, 2007. So things just keep cruising for a few years. And just to give you an idea of what we do <laughs> or what, what it's like there, uh, I kind of explained it a little bit earlier, but you're, you never know what's going to happen and you never know what shift you're going to work. Uh, because it's based around events, you could work, you could, you could be at a show, you know, let's say you're at, um, some sort of auction or something from like eight to 11 o'clock. You know, you're at a party for rich people, essentially. That party ends and they want that room turned overnight for some sort of conference that starts the next day. So there are a lot of times where we're all hanging out together and we're working 16 hours. Uh, we're working from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And then sometimes one of my friends, he slept in, we, there was a room we called the VIPB because uh, that's what it was called, VIPB. And it, it was uh, a place where they were supposed to take VIPs, but they didn't really use it that much. And so it was kind of like a hangout if you wanted to disappear for a little bit. And so my buddy slept in that room one night and because he, he had an hour until his next shift started. The things went so late and it wasn't working out correctly uh, with the set for the show, 
he couldn't leave until four or five in the morning and he had to be back at six. And so he's like, fuck it, I might as well just stay here. And so he just slept in the room. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff happening because the building was so big, you could basically go anywhere you wanted and no one would know what you were doing unless they called you on the radio and then you could choose whether or not to answer them. So there were lots of people sleeping, you know, you go in Sunday morning, you're hungover and you go sleep somewhere. Uh, there was, there was freedom to, to work on projects. If you were scheduled for a shift, they could not tell you at that point in time to go home or they, maybe they could, but they usually didn't. They're like, you're here. You have already donated eight hours of your time. You're not going to find work anywhere else. So if you want to stay here and clean or fix something, or if you want to go disappear somewhere and read a book, you go right ahead. And so there was a lot of that kind of stuff happening. And it was, I mean, I don't want to paint a picture of a bunch of lazy turds not doing anything. We were, we took care of what we needed to take care of and we did a good job. It's just at the end of the day, um, you, you can be compensated in other ways. You can, you can put in your best effort and then chill, in my opinion. And so we did that. We did that a lot. Um, we, I mean, some, some people will go smoke weed on lunch breaks, which is kind of sketchy. You don't really want to do that and then go back inside and get in a lift or something. So, I mean, people were responsible, but, uh, there was, there were shenanigans. Uh, we used to take breaks on the roof. We would climb this outside ladder and go up on top of the roof and watch the sunset, you know, stuff like that. But then one day I was up there with my buddy and it was on, I think it was on 9-13. So not 9-11, but a couple days later. And our attire was always black. We always had to wear black pants and black shirt. And so for whatever reason, somebody driving by on the freeway saw us up there and thought we were terrorists and we were going to do like a 9-11 repeat. So they called the cops and a big thing happened and so we weren't allowed to go on the roof anymore after that um but also so you've got these people so what happened is when we were making ten dollars an hour they they couldn't hire anybody so they had to hire people who didn't know what they're doing like me but then once we got the raise and we were making 1825 they could start raising the bar a little bit on who they brought in. And so they started hiring better people with more industry experience, but these people were also used to doing rock and roll. They were used to corporate. Uh, they were used to just getting things done and having bosses that they could respect. And a lot of these people didn't respect our bosses and were frustrated with the lack of shifts that they were getting. And so people were constantly talking shit all the time. They were disgruntled and upset. Uh, and so, um, personally back to me, you know, uh, we, so this continues at the convention center for a few years. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, it, things didn't work out between my girlfriend and I, and we, we still had our son. And so we we're both uh, raising him in separate apartments and a friend of mine moved in and he lived with me for a while 
And then he eventually met a girl and fell in love and decided he wanted to move in with her. And so that left me without a roommate and I couldn't afford our rent in the apartment. And I had to move. It was pretty crazy. I moved from the apartment we lived in. If you walked out the front door and walked down the apartment complex, like 30 feet, I moved there. So when I moved out of our apartment, I literally carried cases down the sidewalk to my new place. And this new place was, it was cool to be alone, but it was also super depressing. And it happened in May of 2010, which is right before the slow season at the convention center. We usually got laid off in June and July. And so I was right at the end of making money and I was about to get screwed in terms of income. And how do I want to say this? And so what happened is a position opened up at the Portland Art Museum and one of my bosses, his best friend, okay, let me say that differently. One of my bosses at the convention center, his best friend worked at the art museum and he called him up and he said, hey, do you have anybody over there at the convention center that you would recommend for this position? And my friend was like, yeah, I got this guy. I'll, I'll tell him to get a hold of you. So I went and interviewed and they offered me $14 an hour at the art museum, which was a significant pay cut. I mean, granted that included benefits and vacation and all kinds of stuff I didn't currently get at the convention center, but I was a pussy and I was scared of change. And so I told the guy at the art museum, sorry, man, I don't want it. So then I move out of the apartment, move into the one by myself, get laid off at the convention center and all these bills start catching up and I start blasting through my savings. And I realize it's not going to happen. It's not going to work out. Like I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to get kicked out of my apartment or something. And so I call that guy back at the art museum and I say, Hey dude, sorry, this is uh okay. This is like three weeks later. So three weeks have gone by and I call him up. I'm like, Hey, Hey dude, sorry. This is kind of a, kind of a dick move, but you still got that position open because I'm interested. And uh, he had been doing all the shifts by himself, basically working like 80 hours a week. He never hired anybody. And so he goes, yeah, we still got the spot. Come down tomorrow. And so they hired me the next day. That was June 16th, 2010. And it was cool to change and get into a new space but I was also still missing the people that I worked with at the convention center. And due to the way that PERS is set up, you don't become vested in that money you have contributed until you reach employment status of five years. And so my uh, superiors were super cool and they knew that I was like six months away from becoming vested. And they're like, hey, you know what? We'll keep you on the payroll. You can come do shifts for us. While you still work at the art museum, just let us know what your availability is. And so from June to, let's say December, from June to December of 2010, I worked at both places. I worked full time at the art museum and I would still go do a couple shifts, let's say like four shifts a month at the convention center. So I was still, 
I was still in and out of there, uh, hanging out with people and doing work. Um, and so there's this annual event that, that, uh, the convention center always does. And it used to be the biggest event of the year. And it was always kind of exciting because we got to do things that were kind of out of the ordinary. And it also coincided with Christmas. So it was always kind of a special event. And they asked me to come do that event in December of 2010. And I show up for my shift and everybody's freaking out. I'm like, what is going on? And they go, sit down, dude. Jason got arrested. I go, what? And they go, yeah, he killed somebody, man. So this begins the part of the story where we discover what happened. In that group of people that we worked with, I was talking about the the freckled girl who everybody loved. We're going to call her Brittany Sue. And she she was she was like 4 years older than me. I think I was 23 and she was 27. And she had like I said earlier, she was just a very positive person, always smiling, always having a great time. And everybody loved her. And so she's always stopping and having conversations with people. And you could tell all the dudes were just swooning over her. Uh, but what I didn't know is that she was actually having a real relationship with one of the people that worked there. And we're going to call him Jason. And so Brittany Sue and Jason began some sort of thing, which I never really figured out how deep it went. And through some of the conversations I had with her, just in passing, you know, when you're just hanging out, talking about life, she had mentioned that she used to babysit two girls for a family when she lived in, I want to say Sacramento, but maybe San Francisco, somewhere in Central California. So she was the babysitter of these two girls. And the husband and wife eventually ended up getting divorced. And I don't know that she ever directly told me this, but I always believed that she was pretty much responsible for it. Essentially because the husband uh, had an affair with her, with the babysitter, which if that couldn't be more cliche. But uh, it... She spoke of him in very positive ways and, and said he was an amazing person and she didn't mean for any of that to be her fault if it was, but she, I mean, she was just trying to, to move past it. And so she, she came to Portland and started working there and still had contact with him and he moved uh, to Auburn, Washington. And so so she maintains this relationship. We're going to call him Stan. She maintains this relationship with Stan 
as he goes to Auburn. She's in Portland. And she also begins this thing with Jason. And so while, while I'm working with her, I probably worked with her for a year or two. And I worked with him for a year or two, maybe even three. I think I worked with him longer. They never indicated to me that anything was happening. And I don't know if anyone else knew. I don't know if they kept it quiet just because it would have been weird or something. Because there were, I mean, the 15 of us in that group of people all hung out at work. And I don't know, maybe they would have thought it was awkward or something. But they didn't, they didn't mention any of it. And it came out later when I was discussing this with a different friend of mine from there that he said he had a thing with her as well. And I don't know what that means, whether he had a crush on her or if they had a relationship or what. Basically, what I'm trying to say is she was a very desirable person. She she was just super sweet and super positive. Uh, so so some of this I'm I'm talking about as I learned later. Um, and this is where we're going to get to the part where a lot of the stuff that I say was either relayed to me from other people or I combed through the documents that you can find online. But essentially, here it goes. Um, so they had their thing and they, they broke up and he did not take it very well. And in the process, she's maintaining her relationship with Stan in Auburn. And Jason knows about this and he doesn't like it. And I don't know if he ever met Stan or if he just heard about him or saw pictures of him or whatever, but he was not a fan of losing his girlfriend to what he later called an unhot old man. And so some sort of strife or uh, event happens between Brittany Sue and Jason, which pushes him over the edge. And so on May 21st, 2010, he borrows his mom's car. He owned a motorcycle, but for whatever reason, he borrows his mom's car and he drives up to Auburn. And he goes to Stan's house with two 18-inch black zip ties and a knife. And who knows what really went down, whether he... Um, this is where you, you start to question human motive and human thought process. Who knows? Who knows why he did this? Who knows why he he got in the car that day and drove up there? Maybe he just went to have a conversation. Maybe he knew exactly what he was going to do. It's hard to tell. It's hard to say. But he shows up at Stan's house with these black zip ties and a knife. There's some sort of altercation. And he ends up stabbing Stan in the throat, in the hand, and the leg. And then there were also blunt force injuries to Stan's head. 
There's a zip tie on one of Stan's wrists and another on the floor near him. And then Jason leaves. And as they would find out later, there were nothing else in the house was disturbed. It was all confined to this one tiny area. So it makes you wonder if they knew each other, if they had met before, if he snuck in and was waiting for him. You can only imagine what went down that night. Uh, so he leaves and he goes back to Portland. And the next day, the next day, Brittany Sue calls the neighbor next door at Stan's house and says, Hey, I haven't heard from him. I'm, I'm worried about him. Do you, can you go over to his house and check on him? So the neighbor goes over and I believe sees him through the window uh, and calls the police and thus begins the investigation into his murder. And so because Brittany Sue knew the neighbor and she knew Stan, the police began the investigation with her and they went to her the following day and they confiscated her phone and went through her text messages and learned that she had some sort of relationship with Jason. And they asked her, do you know of anyone who would wish any ill upon Stan? And she said, no, he was a wonderful father. I loved him. He was a great person and everybody thought he was wonderful. The only person that ever had anything to say about him was Jason. And they said, okay, who's this Jason guy? And so on May 27th, the Auburn police request, uh, requested a warrant to obtain Jason's cell phone records. On May 28th, the Auburn detectives visited Jason in Portland. They came to his apartment. So this is one week later. They noticed that his right hand was bruised and covered with a blood-stained Band-Aid Jason said he had injured his hand at work. Detectives asked him if he had ever been to Auburn, and he immediately requested to speak to an attorney. On June 2nd, he was interviewed again. He refused to provide a DNA sample and would not answer questions about the last time he went to Auburn. And on June 9th, the detectives visited the Oregon Convention Center. Here, they discovered that the same 18-inch zip ties recovered from the scene are commonplace in the department Jason worked, and he had access to them. They spoke with whoever the supervisor was that day and asked if Jason had injured his hand. And it, it was discovered that he had injured his hand setting a stage, but it didn't break skin. Um, a lot of times, if we... Uh, we're in a hurry or we didn't want to wait for the actual setup crew to move stages. We would just do it ourselves. And so one wonders if he really hurt his hand that day or if he was just trying to create an alibi. But either way, it began to involve other people at the convention center, including his supervisors, my supervisors. Um, on June 20th, 
the detectives receive his cell phone records. And this is some pretty damning stuff right here. Uh, on the day of the murder, May 21st, Jason's cell phone was pinged on I-5 heading north towards Seattle and at cell towers in Auburn from 7 to 9 p.m. Even as close as a few blocks from the murder scene. Um, and then the towers tracked him returning to Portland. So you have him in a two-hour window in the city of the crime scene, two blocks from the house uh, on the night of the murder. And you have the data from him traveling to and from and Portland to Auburn is two and a half hours. I mean, it's a drive. It's not like you just happen to be in Auburn. Uh, on June 22nd, Auburn police obtained the search warrant for Jason's apartment. They seize his phone and a journal that says he was obsessed with Brittany Sue and that Stan was not good enough for her. Then in August, the uh, detectives, they have two DNA samples from the scene. One is Stan's. They obtain a warrant, finally, to pursue Jason's DNA, and his sample comes back as being a one out of 2.2 million individuals whose DNA would match the sample from the scene. So basically, I guess it's possible, but one in 2.2 million is, is a pretty, pretty significant number. And so to give you an idea, I mean, this is all taking place from May 21st to, I just said, in August, they confirmed that his DNA was there. So this entire time, he's still working at the convention center with all of us. And I remember a dramatic mood swing. And I'm sure everyone else noticed it too, but it wasn't... I mean, we never would have thought he murdered somebody. It just seemed like maybe his grandma died and he wasn't getting through it. You know, he was just distraught and very, very upset. And I vividly remember doing some shifts with him where I was just like, what is going on with this guy? And, you know, looking back on it now, it's obvious he was... I mean, I can't imagine being responsible for something like that and then trying to evade it and thinking you might get out of it. And then these, these police and detectives are constantly pursuing you and like all this shit is stacking against you. Like, and then he just goes to work. He just goes to work and hangs out with us and sets up shows. It's fucking ludicrous. Um, so like I said, all this goes, this continues throughout the summer and into the fall and then he, he ultimately gets arrested in December. So that's when all this starts to come out again. And one thing I didn't mention earlier is Brittany Sue does not work here at any point of, of the murder happening to his arrest. I do not remember when she left, but it, it had to have been at least two, three, six months before this happened. So it's not like she's there telling us this happened. No one knows anything happened. We just 
we're living our lives and uh, Jason is having a really tough time. So when it finally comes out in December of 2010 and he gets arrested, we're all just first dumbfounded. And then, you know, we start to piece things together. But as far as I know, no one ever talks to her. And I I haven't talked to her. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what you would say to somebody. That is, that's, that's something that happens on movies. You know, that's not something that happens in real life. It's so insane. But he, so he, he goes to, to jail and he's awaiting trial and they continue to obtain warrants to, to check other things. And so in January, 2012, after searching his phone, the detectives discover that he put in a request for information through a Portland law firm's website several hours before Stan's body was discovered. In this email request, Jason asked if they practiced in Washington for an alleged violent crime that took place in King County. So he drove up there, did this horrendous thing, came back, and before they found the body the next morning, was already requesting information from Portland law firms about the possibility if an alleged crime took place. So there's an overwhelming amount of evidence and any any attempt to clear his name or, or say he's innocent is just ridiculous. Um, but his case goes on and on and on. And so what happened is uh, this interaction resulted in Jason declaring the state violated his rights to confidential communication with an attorney. Essentially, I don't understand law. I'm not a lawyer, but essentially it's saying you have, uh, uh, what is it called? Co uh, confidentiality between client and attorney. There's a word. I can't think of what it is right now, but anything you tell your lawyer cannot be put out into the public. And so I think what they were trying to argue is that because he was requesting information from a law firm, they potentially could have represented him and that the state through searching his email records acquired that information illegally. And so he's trying to get the entire case thrown out on this legality. Uh, and this almost fucking worked. It's, uh, it caused the first trial result to be a hung jury. So he, he almost got out of it. I think, I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not an attorney, but I mean, it hung the jury. And so he had to go again to a second trial. And in this second trial, they ultimately found him guilty of first degree murder and sentenced him to 25 years. And a lot of this information I pulled from his appeal He's still trying to appeal it now, uh, as recent as, I think it was August of 2019. So, in a situation like this, you, you say, why? He, I mean, I didn't know him that well, but he seemed like, a, a, a nice dude. He seemed like a genuine person. He, he was never aggressive. He was never violent. He never 
threw a fit or got upset with anybody. He was just a chill dude. And that's the question you ask. What what causes someone to snap like that? He he had been I'm going to get this wrong. He was he was either in the National Guard or the Army. He did some sort of service. And so some psychiatrist somewhere would probably say that had an influence and who knows? Maybe it did. Maybe there was something Maybe he saw something somewhere that just couldn't leave him. And maybe it somehow allowed him to further do this. I don't know. I I can only speculate. But to, to intentionally get in a car that you borrow from your mom with items to, to hold someone against their will and, potentially uh, in their life to get in a car and drive two and a half hours to a different destination and then still do it. That, that's beyond a fit of rage. That's beyond someone broke in your house and you accidentally shot them. Like that is premeditated with hours and hours to go what the fuck am I doing? But that never happened. And he went all the way up there. And he went through with this heinous, heinous crime. And left two little girls without a father. And left the sweetest girl in the world without a boyfriend. And, and probably future husband. It, it wrecked who knows how many lives. Um, all for, for love or all for revenge. I don't know. Um, the, the thing that we just kept saying to each other at the convention center afterwards is like, what, what would this have accomplished? Like, what, what are you, what are you going to do? You're going to do that. And then she's going to be in love with you and she's going to be with you now. I, I don't know what the thought process is on that. So that, that was a thing that happened. And now we're coming up on 10 years. And so after it happened, you know, the the court process took forever. And so we kind of forgot about it as much as you can forget about something like that until he was convicted. And then it's like, holy shit, man, this guy we worked with is in jail for 25 years for murdering somebody. But what I did for like a creative release at that point in my life. Cause I used to, used to write a lot of songs and play a lot of guitar. So I was working at the art museum and a lot of times you, you would have everything done there as well. And you'd kind of have some slow time to yourself. And I spent a lot of time in my office in the basement playing guitar and writing songs. And so one day I was just hanging out down there and I had this chord progression and I started playing it and all these lyrics started coming to me. And so the, the first two verses are about this story and then the rest of them kind of go into some other things, but I thought I'd close with that.
I once knew a guy who did murder a guy One warm May night for the 4th of July And drove up to Auburn with a knife at his side To slash that poor man for he could marry his bride Well, I once knew a girl who was enamored with the world A twinkle in her eye and her hair done up in curls She rode down to Austin but never did return Bought a one-way ticket on the wings of a bird Well, I once had a friend who I considered a friend Across this wide country, not a place he hadn't been. I typed him up a message to ask about his twin. He asked me, could you tell me who this is again? Well, I once bought a place inside a timeline in space. I wrote about all the experiences I faced. For each and every choice that I've gone and made The one thing I've learned is the youth will always fade And I once overheard a woman asking a girl If the place she did reside was in the north or east side And before she could finish, the woman did decide there's no reason to mingle with people of that kind And I once heard my heart break and fall apart Some little punk ass bitches just gave my son a start They said he was the biggest loser of the class If they weren't just four years old, well I'd beat their fucking ass And I once wrote a song, not too short and not too long. Came to me quickly in the basement of a strong old building on a corner in Portland, Oregon. It was written so messy across the back of a blonde. It was written so messy across the back of a blonde. It was written so messy across the back of a blonde.